Well, good morning, church. I am excited to preach to my family, some friends, and my church family. So I'm excited to engage in the scriptures together. We are going to be in our Bibles, so I hope that you can reach out for one that's on the table. If you can find the book of Isaiah and Matthew, Matthew's the first book of the Old Testament, and then Isaiah is after the Psalms. Um, it'll be helpful just to kind of be in those two spots, and then please utilize the handout that's on the table. There should be enough, at least for everyone or two people to share, and that will help guide our conversation and journey to see how Jesus is beckoning us to find comfort in an unusual space. And it's interesting, when God really wants to get our attention, he does something unexpected, Unexpected, like having a child read the scripture this morning. Unexpected, like having a strange man come out of the wilderness. And uh, while um, you're all getting there, I just wanted to say a prayer and then just move forward in our time together. Is that all right? Jesus, we ask you to give us your heart, mind, and ear to listen to the Spirit. May we make ourselves vulnerable. May we make ourselves open. And we thank you that we are able to receive the forgiveness that carries our sin away, that covers our sin, and cleanses us of our sin, and allows us to cleave to you. In your name, amen. So we're going to just march through the text and see how that guides us. Uh, predominantly Matthew. I am just finding a voice memo to just press record. So I'm on my keep track of time. So it's interesting. God sends this strange man, John the Baptist. What a perfect message for Seth to have me preach. He speaks of fire, wrath, repentance. Yep, put me on the spot. But it's interesting that it's in this weird message and this everything that makes us uncomfortable about God that we're actually supposed to find comfort. Well, first thing, let's think about John the Baptist. Can you go to the next slide? Such a strange man, comes out of the wilderness, eats locusts and honey, but he says something from the prophet Isaiah. But before we get into Isaiah, I wanted to kind of set the stage because at the beginning of our text, it says, in those days. So what days are we in? What days is John the Baptist entering the scene with the people? At this moment, the people of Israel, God's people, have been kind of in this weird spot where they're back in the promised land, but they're not really receiving any of the promises. 400 years before that, they were conquered by the Babylonians and Assyrians, and their entire people were scattered, families were separated, loved ones were killed, and they're still recuperating from this. So this is where John the Baptist is saying to the people, the time has come, the time of suffering being sorrowful over our sin, 
and self-pity is over and God is coming to do something new. That is the message that we come in those days from John the Baptist. So then in verse 2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You can just say that on that slide. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is God's new world happening in our own time. That God is saying, I'm going to bring heaven on earth. I'm going to bring the way the world should be now. And I'm going to teach you how to live like that now. This is echoed in the Lord's Prayer, right? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a common theme throughout, um, actually, I think all of Scripture, but especially the Gospel of Matthew. So God is saying, the time is over, the time of waiting is over, and now I'm going to do something brand new. The question I have, though, is John says, repent. Is, is John the Baptist kind of like one of those guys on the street corner with a sign yelling at people? And is John the Baptist telling people to repent of, um, of their personal sins or communal sins, like public sins? Um, I know a couple, like whether it be Kaylee or, or Drew, I know both of you grew up in kind of immersed in the Catholic Church. And... When you guys hear confession, what do you hear? Like, what just pops in your mind? What do you think of? Well, yeah, be honest. Right, and it's supposed to be just about yourself, and it's to someone else, and it's kind of just impersonal sometimes, or just re- there's just a repetition to it. Well, John the Baptist is calling us to do, yes, to talk about ourselves and our personal sins, but he's also calling the people to, as a whole, to come forward and enter into his new world. That he's saying we need to repent together, that it's not just one of us that's the problem with why the world is the way it is, that we are all responsible. So that's why confession is actually more of a group thing. And we need to respond together to the Lord rather than just in our own private faith. That if we just keep what's inside of us private, we will never really truly experience healing. And that is what the people are doing. The people are coming all over to meet John the Baptist. So I want to look briefly at, um, you can look at the handout. We're going to jump to Isaiah because for some reason... If you look here, there's an italicized section in your little handout. It says, prepare the way of the Lord, make the path of, the, of our God straight. This is a quote from Isaiah 40. But if you look at the top, this whole poem says, comfort, comfort. That we're supposed to find comfort in repentance. That we're supposed to find God's healing when we repent. And if you look, look at the text in Matthew, the text that's highlighted. It says in in Isaiah, it says, the glory of God will be seen by all people. And then what do we find in John? It says kind of a foretaste of this. All the people from Judea were coming out to get baptized. Showing that John is mirroring 
Isaiah's own text, that the message of Isaiah is now being brought forth in John the Baptist. And we're supposed to find comfort that we are forgiven of our sins. Just briefly, I wanted to just ask, what connections do you guys see between the text? Just the comparison between the two. Just feel free to take a look. Any connections that you see, any similarities that you see, you can just speak out. Go for it. So one is being commanded from God and the other one is being commanded from the people? Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about me? <laughs> yeah, there is kind of like this ironic, uh, gentler feel to the, the text in Isaiah. But I think the way that... Um, The climax of Isaiah's poem is in verse 5. It's what's called a chiasmic poem. This is just me being a little nerdy. But it's called a chiasmic poem, which means that the beginning and end of the poem mirror the same. You have a message going out to Jerusalem. You look a couple lines down to verse 9. You have a message going out to Jerusalem. You look ahead, and it says a voice will cry out. You look a little bit below, so the voice will cry out. And in the middle is that section where it says, all people will see the glory of God. And then interestingly enough, Matthew doesn't include that, that little section there. But he does include the meaning by showing that all people are coming out. That something in John the Baptist's message is attractive. No matter how maybe harsh or maybe rigid it may seem compared to the text in Isaiah. So a question, though, that I've, I was asking myself is, why the heck are people, what's significant about bab, getting baptized in, in, the, in our text? John, let's look at John the Baptist himself. He's kind of an eccentric person. He likes using symbols for meanings and things like that. Heck, he eats locusts and he wanders in the desert to make people realize that he's like a prophet from the Old Testament. So I'm guessing that he's probably focused on being at the Jordan River for a specific reason. So if you look at your handout, on the left side, I have some texts that show the symbolism of baptism. In Genesis 1, it says that the waters covered the earth. And then what does God do? He makes dry land appear, and he puts his his new people on that land. Then in Genesis 7, with the flood, God rescues his people from the waters and then puts them on new land, Noah and his family, on 
new land. And then in Exodus, God opens up the waters and the people walk on dry land to the other side and are taken from being slaves to God's people. And then again with Joshua, God dries up the Jordan River and they get welcomed into the promised land. Now, John the Baptist takes the people to a significant place in their own history. And when people were getting baptized, they weren't just getting dunked and walking back to shore. They would get baptized on outside of Israel and walk in. Showing that God is doing something new, that God is going to renew his own people. And that is the message of John the Baptist. And that's why it was so exciting. That's why it says all these people are coming out to him. And looking into verses 7 through 10, we get the, the harsh message from John the Baptist, right? The, the Pharisees and Sadducees come, and what does John the Baptist say? He doesn't say, oh, great, the popular people are here to support me. Now I'm going to be um, known. My message is going to go further. No, he goes, you brood of vipers, <laughs> who warned you? Who told you that the wrath warned you of the wrath to come, that John the Baptist speaks truth to power, which is something that we've talked about here before when we looked at the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, that for the, for the brokenhearted, for those who are taken advantage of, God gives a message of comfort and repentance. But for those who abuse their power and aren't really seeking forgiveness, God gives a message that is a little more rigid, which is what we find with John the Baptist. And what's interesting enough is C.S. Lewis and uh, Weight of Glory has this last section of on forgiveness. And he talks about how a lot of times when we say we forgive people, we're not really forgiving people. We're excusing them. Someone wrongs us and we're like, no, it's okay it's all right, we're giving them an excuse. Instead of saying, no, like, that hurt me, but I forgive you. That actually shows the power and the love from God when we actually say, I forgive you, rather than just making excuses. And what's interesting is that God, when we come to God, if we just come with our excuses, we will never receive the power of forgiveness. And we will just be stuck in our own sin behavior over and over again, never experiencing growth or healing. And the truth is, is that God has forgiven the inexcusable in us so that we may forgive the inexcusable in others. But what kind of forgiveness is, is John the Baptist speaking of? There's um, three, I just picked three types of forgiveness from the Old Testament um, that are littered throughout the Psalms, especially. And uh, I would... Um, ask you to just kind of check those out, because most of the time, you, uh, for instance, in Psalm 25, 18, it speaks of forgiveness in our English translation. But the type of forgiveness is a forgiveness that carries a burden or weight that we cannot bear. And then another type of forgiveness is a forgiveness to remove, to, as um, a phrase that you maybe may have heard of is that our sins are as far as the east are from the west, that God separates us from our sin. 
And then another way of talking about forgiveness is God renews us from our sin. This is a really good one would be Psalm 51, where David is crying out for God to renew his contrite heart. Um, So I would just ask you as um, you meditate after the, the discussion or even in small group time, you look at these verses and see how forgiveness is being articulated. So we can appeal to God to carry our sin. We can appeal to God to remove our sin. And we can appeal to God to renew us from our sin. For the sake of time and to show how we can receive forgiveness by confessing our sins, I wanted to focus on just one of those ways that the Old Testament speaks of forgiveness and then we can interact with it, okay? We're going to focus on appealing for God to carry, to cover, and cancel our sin. It's this type of forgiveness. Um, If you look in even Isaiah 40, you will find the term lifted or carried four times, which is the same word that's translated as forgiveness in other passages of the Old Testament. So, And I also wanted to focus on differentiating between coming to God with a heart of self-pity versus receiving self-empathy. And that we cannot really experience repentance unless we are able to explore what's really going on in us that caused us to commit the sin in the first place. So, let me flip to my note. So, for instance, making a difference between God, like, God can forgive us objectively. Like, you may say in your heart, yes, I know I'm forgiven. I know that I'm no longer held captive by this sin. You may, but you may be still holding it subjectively. You still are punishing yourself for the sin that you committed, for the shame and guilt that you're experiencing. You still carry it with you, even though you know that you are being cleaned by the blood of Jesus. So how do we not subjectively continue to carry our sin around with us? For Isaiah 40 says, the time of mourning is over. We have suffered long enough from our sin. We don't have to wallow around in self-pity and talk about ourselves as if we're worthless anymore. We can go through the waters of baptism, be cleansed, renewed from our sin. So how do we do that? So I wanted to discuss a way of discussing repentance with a view of self-pity versus self-empathy, and especially in regards to shame, in regards to shame or guilt. Shame is I am wrong, that all of who I am is, a, is wrong. Shame says I am worthless, I am undesirable, and I have no purpose. Guilt, on the other hand, says, I have done wrong, that I cannot do anything right. It's this cloud that we carry with us, even though we've already experienced God's forgiveness. We've already know that God has forgiven us. So we carry this around because we're having self-pity over ourselves. And self-pity views ourselves as a victim instead of taking ownership of our sin. Versus self-empathy says, okay, like, I understand that I've sinned, 
And we can move so quickly to just say, I'm sorry and want to move on. But that's not what God wants us to do when we come in repentance. God wants us to explore within us so we can understand where that sin came from. So, for instance, I, uh, I'm going to be uh, vulnerable and just kind of share my own battle with self-pity versus self-empathy. That, for instance, I have a hard time trusting people in authority. And maybe, I, maybe the solution is I just go to God, ask for forgiveness for that, and move on. But then, again, when I meet the next person in authority, I still have that with me. Well, why, why, am I have, why do I have such disdain over authority? Where does that come from? Well, it's actually because I have shame around my own connection to authority. When I was 17, my dad walked out of my life, decided to go live an adulterous life. And the years after that, if anyone said, oh, what are you doing for Father's Day? Or, oh, does your dad do this? Um, I would just feel shame because I didn't want to tell them what was really going on in my family life. So then, because I didn't want to talk about my shame, it came out as anger and embitterment towards other people in authority. Does that make sense seem an example of how shame, even though I was ashamed, it was coming out as anger? And because I had self-pity around myself, because I started viewing myself as a victim. And that's why I didn't like authority figures is because I thought I was better than them. Because I had been wronged by authority, so then no authority should have anything to, over me. So instead, now I'm learning how to embrace self-empathy by exploring where that anger came from and realizing it was really tied to shame and I was holding on to it. Um, another, I guess, example of how of shame uh, for my Star Wars fans out there would be Darth Vader. Darth Vader is an example of someone with shame. A shame that he went to the dark side and it's not until the sixth movie that he's like, I should have came back a long time ago. That he was ruled by his shame and continued down his path of darkness. That's just another example. I thought people would connect with that, especially Tom, right? Yeah. So the question is, do we really trust God to listen? Because that's what we really need if we're going to experience self-empathy. Is when, when we share our problems to one another, can you go to the next one? Yeah. When we share our problems with one another, right? We hate it when we're sharing something deep, personal, and then someone says, you think that's bad. Let me tell you this. Or, oh, I have the answer to your problem. You just need to do this. You just need to read your Bible more. Or we, we get analyzed. Oh, I see what's going on here. And then someone tries to piece together why we're so jacked up. Or someone just says, you share something deep with me. And I just say, that's hard. That's sympathy. What we really want is someone to empathize with us. When we share something difficult, we want someone else to share something difficult about themselves that resonates with us, to know that we're not alone. But God will always listen. God is always listening, which means that we can present our truest self. He gives us the space to explore that self-empathy. And the best way to explore self-empathy is actually through our own body. 
that God created us as a physical being and spiritual being, which means that we can set ourselves to a posture. That the baptism was just a symbol that people were able to express their, sin, their mournfulness of sin and go through an action that, when I was baptized, I got this immense experience of relaxation and euphoria. Just like this weight lifted off me. Similarly, if when I, when I sit down and I've already gone through the process of self-empathy and I just take a deep breath and just let my body relax before I move into a space of talking with God to receive repentance and forgiveness, then I'm no longer just rattling off lists to God. I'm, I'm actually saying things because I know he is listening. And then when we are able to give that back to God, we are no longer carrying our shame, our guilt anymore, because we've learned how to experience the depths of who we are, which is kind of scary. It's scary to explore what's really going on inside of us. And it's much easier to say, that was right, that was wrong, God forgive me and move on. But we'll, we find ourselves in a perpetual pattern of that sin when we don't when we still carry it. Just like how Israel in the Old Testament continues to go back to idols, continues to go after foreign gods, continues to take advantage of the people, is because they never really sought the forgiveness as a community the way that God was always intending. Which is why John the Baptist knows his space in verse 11 and 12. He knows that he is just the precursor. He is just the preview of what Jesus' ministry and forgiveness project is. That all the people of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to John the Baptist. But it's all the people of the world that really will come out to Jesus and experience forgiveness. And when we experience the forgiveness from God himself, we learn how to experience the forgiveness to one another. For God actually says... He says, if you don't forgive one another, I'm not going to forgive you. That there's no way around it. That once we've received the forgiveness, we have to learn how to empathize now with one another the same way that God empathized with us. And helping people work through their own self-empathy. Because it's tough. It's tough to learn how to empathize with oneself and to understand oneself and then try to help other people, coach people through that. And that's why it takes a community to experience forgiveness, is that we have to be open and vulnerable with one another. That baptism didn't happen in a closet. It didn't happen behind the scenes. It happened for everyone to see, that everyone knew that we all needed cleansing. We all needed God to cover and carry our sin so that we have nothing to hide. So let us, as a community, cross the threshold and go on to new shores and to see what God is going to do. Because that's what Advent's all about. This conscious waiting and expectation that we can experience forgiveness in God's time, meaning we've experienced God's forgiveness already through Jesus. We can experience God's forgiveness today, and we can anticipate receiving further forgiveness in the future. God's time is past, present, and future, just like forgiveness that we receive now in the past and in the future.
can all go into discussion. And if you have questions, 